Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Washington Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Russia killed Alexei Navalny a week before a prisoner exchange would have freed the opposition leader and between five and seven others in exchange for Russian spies and thugs held in Western countries is one of the things I've learned uh, in the past couple of days. Moscow also executed a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine and was living in Spain. Washington has imposed 500 new sanctions on Russia, Russians, and Russian interests, but it's unclear whether or not it will do anything to hamper Russia's war machine, given the country's economy, based on war spending, has grown by 3%, according to the International Monetary Fund. Leaked documents outline the magnitude of Chinese domestic and global intelligence operations, and the United States finds itself isolated uh, in its unwavering support of Israel's relentless uh, strikes on Gaza to eradicate Hamas that have now killed some 30,000 people. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, uh, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and a co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, joining us from sunny Lithuania, Chris Cervello, the co-host of the Cavus Ships podcast, one of the key members of our editorial team. He's a retired United States Navy public affairs officer who's also the co-founder of the Provision Advisors PR firm, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations, uh, one of our own Michael Herson, uh, the president of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms is off this week because Congress is uh, in recess, although we'll be joining us next week. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure. Chris, uh, thanks for uh, batting for us today. And of course, uh, Jim, thanks very much for making time. I know you've been speaking uh, and it's a busy day in Lithuania for you uh, about seven hours ahead. Um, a week after Russia killed uh, its leading opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, Washington has imposed 500 new sanctions on the Russians. Uh, Russian companies and, and interests. Despite these sanctions, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Russian economy has continued to grow as U.S. partners like Turkey and India help Moscow circumvent uh, sanctions or, or dampen them, and adversaries uh, like China, Iran, and North Korea help Moscow and its war machine. Russian authorities won't release Navalny's body uh, and demand the family accept a secret funeral, otherwise they will dispose of the body. So um, you know, if, if you're thuggish enough to kill somebody, you're thuggish enough to pull a move like that. Uh, to drive the point home, uh, a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine was assassinated in Spain, where he had taken refuge. A Russian blogger who was, uh, was forced uh, to kill himself, apparently for revealing the extent of the casualties Russia took um, to retake uh, Avdivka. As Alexei Navalny uh, said in the Oscar-winning CNN documentary, Navalny, Killing people solves problems. The problem with it is uh, once you start, it's hard to stop. Uh, to compound matters and underscore how Putin is demonstrating his power, I've learned that Washington uh, was leading Western nations in secret talks to free Navalny, up along with five or seven others from Russian captivity in exchange for spies and thugs being held in Western nations. Navalny's killing uh, came a week uh, or so, uh, as I understand it. Uh, before those talks, uh, those talks were to have borne fruit. To me, this is a clear signal that Russia is at war with us, has been at war with us, and it's we're still sort of not fully coming to grips with it. Um, Jim, you're in Lithuania. From from your perspective, you know what do you and the folks that you're talking to uh, make of these sanctions? 
and and how how does the United States have to, to kind of fundamentally change the game? You know, some have said it's time to withdraw sanctions on oligarchs, uh, maybe give them financial incentives to help change the political dynamic uh, in Russia, which which many argue is a little bit more brutal than people would expect. Apologies for the long setup question, but I want to try to get to the heart of the matter, which is what will it take for everybody to really take this as seriously as 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 we need to take it away? Well, you know, that's actually a lot of what was discussed today here in Vilnius at the uh, at the uh, Vilnius Security Conference. A very somber mood, very serious mood, not like Munich, where uh, the Munich Security Conference can be a bit of a carnival. And uh, there's a lot of, of craziness. This was pretty small and expert level uh, and uh, and and quite uh, quite serious. It was mainly. Uh, the three Balts plus Scandinavians, Poles, uh, others across the alliance, um, panel after panel, trying to get at your point. And uh, one thing I'll say about sanctions, one of the speakers said that um, uh, that one can make a case that sanctions don't work. And this speaker said, it's not that sanctions don't work. It's that sanctions will work if they are appropriately applied, if they are um sanctions where they are, there is a punishment uh, for those who try to circumvent, who or work with the Russians to circumvent, that there's there's ways in which you can implement sanctions to make them work. And his point is that they haven't been implemented very well because there's been such circumvention. So so I think I think generally, certainly the mood in uh, in the conference, and this is before word got out about these additional sanctions, but I would say that uh, most of the people here would just shake their heads and go, look, uh, we know war is is in the next few years. We don't have a lot of time. We've got to scramble to get ready. Uh, a lot of focus on the total defense concept, you know, getting your entire society engaged like the Finns and Swedes do. A lot of Finns and Swedes are talking about how they go about doing it. Uh, Lithuania is well down the road to doing it. Uh, and myself and, and, and uh, Ben Hodges, who is also here, we spoke quite a bit about what this would look like in terms of the U.S., uh, what we need to be doing. So this is uh, this is this is not a happy crowd here. There wasn't a lot of camaraderie and backslapping. This was a pretty serious group Dove, uh you know, you've been uh, at and around this uh, for some time. We've been talking about this uh, for a long time uh, as well. From from your standpoint, what do you make of the sanctions? And what are the next steps that really concretely have to be taken, right? I mean, we'll get to the congressional dynamic of this. Uh, obviously, Chuck Schumer and Chairman Reed and a number of other members are in Ukraine right now to drive home the point of the importance of passing uh, more aid uh, to Ukraine. The president makes that case on an almost hourly uh, basis, including when he met with uh, the Navalny family in San Francisco uh, yesterday. Kind of give, give, give us a sense on where we need to be taking this uh, and and what are other novel means maybe we should be investigating in order to be able to, you know, because basically it's it's him or us. He is at war with all of us and trying to undermine every democracy on the planet if he can get away with it. Well, first of all, uh, I totally agree with the people who said to Jim that sanctions don't necessarily work. Years ago, I wrote about this in, uh, uh, in a monograph. The, the thing about when sanctions work, it's when everybody is on board every country's on board. It happened with South Africa. It happened with Rhodesia. It doesn't happen when you've got a bunch of countries that either just don't care 
or are beyond America's secondary sanctions. And that's one of the things that we don't do enough of. Uh, if we really want to get Russia, we have to have the secondary and even tertiary sanctions and, and of course, enforce them, uh, which we don't necessarily do witness what we're doing with Iranian oil. So that's the critique of sanctions. What should we be doing? I've said before, we can uh, on this uh, program, uh, we can lease equipment to the Ukrainians. Uh, which we're not doing, and we could do much more quickly, by the way, than going through the whole process of, of transferring with congressional approval. I mean, you can just go ahead and lend lease, as it were, and then you forget that you actually lent them. Uh, so there, that would be the best way to really deal with this problem, because you're, you're not going to stop Putin unless the Ukrainians stop Putin. Simple as that. And the only way to get the Ukrainians to stop Putin is to help them out and although the Europeans, as, as Jim rightly says, are really getting dead serious about this, even to the point that Hungary is going to approve Sweden's coming into NATO next week, which tells me after the 50 million euros that Hungary didn't vote against at the EU, that even Orban is beginning to worry about his buddy Putin. Uh, the only way you're going to do this is if the United States ships what the Ukrainians have been begging for for well over a year, if not from the beginning of the war. If we don't do that, everything else is just really just talk. And could I could I jump in on that uh, just for a second, Vago? Uh, yeah, uh, of course. What, uh, of course, Jim. Go ahead. What what Dove says is exactly right. And one thing that I've been stressing here and, and others have picked up on this, too, is that it's amazing to me how different the mood is here. I mean, just a few hundred miles, uh, you know, from the border with Russia, you know, as Belarus, of course, is right over the, over the side. But how different the mood and tone is of people you talk to here versus in Washington or in anywhere else in the U.S. As I talk to relatives and friends, one thing that is so clear is that in Europe and this is in Germany and Denmark and other places, too, they are the public officials are talking about the potential of conflict in the next couple of years and that we've got to get really serious about this. You don't hear that talk in the United States and you don't hear that in Washington. And um, I, I realize this is an election year. You're not going to expect Biden to make some big speech from the Oval Office saying war is on the way. But we've got to do something more than we're doing now in terms of preparing the American people uh, beyond the rhetoric that we just keep pumping out, preparing the American people that if Ukraine falters, it's going to, there's going to be a conflict that will roll back on the United States as well. That, um, that, that is right. the firm conclusion of everyone you talk to here. And this is sober-minded experts. This isn't people running around with their hair on fire. Uh, and so that's something that, that I think we increasingly are going to have to turn to. The administration might not feel they're able to, to say this, but in, but in media interviews and things for us, I think it is incumbent upon us to begin to say that Ukraine is buying time for us in the West to get ready. Right. And if Ukraine falters, Russia will look for another victim. And we've got to be ready for that potential. And that and, and if it's going to be a NATO ally, the U.S. will be involved. Um, I, he is at war with us. He's made that clear. 
His actions make it clear. Actions speak louder than words. And we're looking at this, I think, as a problem that we can somehow manage. And and I'm going to go to Chris uh, in a minute here to talk a little bit about the information war, because it's stunning to me how incredibly, we've talked about this before, how incredibly flat-footed almost all governments are to the pernicious messaging that the Russians keep injecting, and indeed Chinese and, and other figures into our political discourse that then get repeated, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, whether they're administration people, whether they're journalists or elsewhere. I mean, this this sort of uh, uh, toxic uh, uh, thinking that actually has a spawn in the basement uh, or, or the front office of the Kremlin. Um, and and Dove, to your point, right, I mean, that uh, and I, I think you meant 50 billion, uh, 54 billion dollars in aid, uh, you know, Hungary going along with it. Although I can I, I also would like to think it is good sense that's driving Orban. It could also be a great EU back deal, you know, a backroom drug deal with them uh, that, hey, we'll, we'll give you some more subsidies and we'll do some other stuff. I know we're punishing you for being an autocrat, but we'll give you a little looser leash. Uh, you know, I mean, I could also see that happening as opposed to, you know, uh, Orban thinking that his buddy Putin is, is not going to cause trouble for him. Um, Patrick, uh, you know, I, I come back at you at that because, quite frankly, Orban had, you know, that offer that you talked about could have been made over a long period, almost beginning of the war. Uh, I think that Orban, the reason he's held out is because he's a buddy of Putin. Uh, But if you look at the pattern of the of the agreement to EU money and finally, finally, after promising this for eight or nine months, they're really going to do it this coming week. That tells me there's a little bit of a pattern here. And the only explanation that I can see is not that he got bribed, because then how does the Swedish thing do it? And just the aircraft, the grip and aircraft he's going to get, you know, it, it just isn't enough. I think the man has come to realize that, yes, he's going to continue to suck up to Putin, but he's going to hedge a lot more than he's done until now. Uh, ideally, uh, I would like to believe that you're right, Dove, and normally you've got a very good batting average, so I'm willing to give you the break on this one. Uh, Patrick, I want you to apply your sort of security mind to this, right? I mean, I'm not necessarily going to ask you what I almost always ask you, which is, how are the Chinese perceiving this? Uh, obviously, they are drawing their own lessons uh, in watching it, right? I mean, if if you watch Vladimir Putin uh, get rid of so many people so quickly, you might consider as an authoritarian regime, you know, I don't just need to kill people in Xinjiang. I, I can kill all manner of people with uh, maybe a little bit more the um, free hand uh, at the end of the day. So if you want to address that, uh, go ahead as well. Right. I mean, I think that this kind of mis you know, I, I suppose you could kill anybody you want in Russia. But it's a little more problematic when you go around everywhere else and try to kill uh, Russians uh, and then make no secret about it. Right. I mean, the Russians you know, clearly said this man was scum and deserved to die. OK, message delivered. They're trying to say no matter nobody is safe, no matter where they are. You could be on DuPont Circle. You're at risk. You could be in, a, you know, Salisbury uh, or you could be in Berlin uh, or, or anywhere uh, or, or on the Spanish coast and, and be uh, vulnerable. What, what's your sense in how the administration needs to handle this? A threat of this magnitude, aggression of this magnitude. Uh, duplicity of this magnitude, right? I mean, so presumably somebody was negotiating some manner of prisoner exchange deal. It's just that the boss was not, you know, had other ideas 
about how he wanted this to go down. Or maybe that was his intention from the very beginning, which was give everybody false hope and then jerk the leash away, which would be a very Stalin-esque thing to do, given that Putin admires Stalin. What's, what's your sense on the way that we ought to be negotiating this and addressing this, especially in the face of these most recent transgressions from, from Moscow? From strength. And 500 new sanctions is weakness, not strength. Um, if we already did the nuclear sanctions uh, sort of bit over the war uh, in the invasion with the SWIFT uh, sanctions, for instance, and banking, and that and their economy still grows by 3% as it did last year, then sanctions are not having the desired strategic effect. And so we shouldn't put them front and center of policy when you have such a nefarious act as the callous killing of your main political rival. Granted, Putin was never going to allow Navalny to go free. He couldn't, he cannot withstand a critic um, who actually knows about Putin and the weakness and about Russia to speak so freely. So this was inevitable that he was going to have to silence him, in this case, permanently. But the cause will go on. Navalny's message of don't give in is one that we need to reinforce. So rather than sanctions, rather than just sanctions, I don't, I'm not objecting to some sanctions, but let's be real. They're not having the strategic effect we want. We want to show strength. That's serious arms to Ukraine. That's serious U.S. military deployments to Europe. Um, you know, it means actions that put Russia's nearest and dearest uh, interests at some greater risk, just as Putin hangs right now the idea of a nuclear system in space over us. Um, we have to respond to this with real strength. Um, fewer name-calling words, uh, fewer sanctions. And if we have sanctions, not 500, one big one, you know, one that really matters uh, to something he holds dear. This is the only way you're going to be able to deal with this kind of tyrant. And it's the message that will also be heard in Beijing, Pyongyang, Tehran, and elsewhere. Do, oh, do by the need... way, on you know sanctions, you know just sure. it's not even just India buying Russian oil and so on. Taiwan and Japan, you know, are a key partner and ally, um, are providing precision instruments even now to help Russia's uh, military production. So the sanctions are just as soon as you announce a sanction, it's they start to weaken the day afterward <laughs> because because in this case, Russia starts to work on the circumvention and there are just too many circumventions on sanctions. So we have to have something more than sanctions at the center of a strong muscular response to, you know, to bold, brazen aggression, in this case, assassination. Um, I'm going to uh, come back to everybody in a minute, but I want to bring uh, Chris into this, who's been patiently uh, waiting. Um, uh, Chris, messaging is something you and I discuss literally on a daily basis, if not several times. Uh, a day. You've noted to me how rapidly the Tucker Carlson interview with Vladimir Putin spread throughout the U.S. informational ecosystem. Uh, I've talked to Europeans who have told me the exact same thing, that they were stunned how quickly th that Putin's messaging was spread, not just through the right of their country, but across their entire populations, um, whether it was, you know, on on the left, whether it was through journalists, whether it was just almost through osmosis, as we've discussed, what's how what's happening? How is one side able to propagate its messages so effectively, and the other side, which has some exceptional communicators, one of your mentors is John Kirby, uh, who's I think sort of right a Hall of Fame communicator, and yet we're unable to get some of these 
messages out, the counter messages that go beyond whether or not Biden spoke at, you know, before the Super Bowl or, 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 or not. What's, what's your sense about, you know, what's at stake? Because this is a messaging campaign and we appear to be losing it in virtually every single democracy. And Russia's fingers are involved in it. And we've seen even Chinese fingers are involved with it. Well, I mean, it, it is important to remember that from a tactical standpoint, I mean, uh, dictatorships are going to eat democracy's lunch uh, every time in a messaging war because they they lack the scruples and the rules that democracies have. So I'm not surprised that from a tactical standpoint, we're, we're struggling. Um, the the problem is, and and I I think it's important to go back to what Patrick said. Um, right now, we lack the strength. We we lack the collective high ground to then message from. Um, and until uh, the the United States, uh, from a messaging standpoint, makes the political messaging uh, secondary to a larger American value messaging. I think we're going to continue to to struggle. Um, you know, all of the the tactics aside. Now, I mean, get getting to the tactics. Yeah, there are a lot more um, things that we can and should be doing if we want to counter um, Russian or Chinese or Iranian or you, you know, pick your um, belligerent that that we need to counter. Um, but right now, we do not have a collective set of American value values-based messaging um, that we uh, draw on time in and time again, regardless of party. Um, the the headlines are driven by political messaging, and so until we can get to something that is more American, um, uh, you know, we're we're going to continue to struggle. How does that messaging campaign need to be shaped? I mean, John Seward, I think, did say some something pretty interesting that in their battle sort of against wokeness and diversity and all of the things that are viewed as the ills of the left, um, that some on the right are very happy to embrace, you know, authoritarianism and a guy who talks about religion and, you know, uh, you know, is, is a tough man, um, that, that, you know, the, the Russian messaging actually has fertile ground, right? He's playing on people being treasonous to their own countries because of their other uh, uh, interests, right? Whether they be uh, religious, uh, personal freedoms, what, what what have you. I mean, how do you counter message in, in that kind of an environment where what Putin is selling is is planting itself in relatively fertile for some, you know, he's fighting for Western Christianity and Everybody else are just, you know, like somehow he's, you know, paragon of godliness for some, right? I mean, how do you counter that? Well, I mean, my, my sense is, is that th there's not a lot new here, though, Vago. I mean, I, I think he is running the KGB playbook from the 1960s and 1970s, right? I mean, J Jim and Patrick would and, and Dove are, are, are more expert in that than, than I am from a sort of a more a holistic standpoint. But I mean, as I look at it right. from an information standpoint, I mean, th this is what we saw during the, you know, the race riots and civil rights actions in the, in the 1950s and 60s. This is what we saw, you, you know, in, in, in other social issues, um, the, you know, communist regimes uh, sought to um, exploit the division. And again, if you're a dictatorship, it's easier to exploit the divisions of a democracy than, than it is for a democracy to kind of hold the, the line. Um, but to answer your question, I mean, we, we have to show up and we have to just start doing it. Um, you, you know, and, and I don't know that it's, 
yes, John Kirby is an amazing communicator and th this uh, this White House has a tremendous amount of talent, but I mean, it, it th there almost needs to be a national recognition. Uh, and, I, and I know I sound Pollyannish here, but it, there has to be a national recognition that there is a problem. Um, and then we have to start getting after that that problem until there's a real recognition and a, a toughness, a strength that Patrick talks about. Um, I, I am fearful that um, we're going to continue to get our lunch eaten. I, I think we have a moral obligation at an individual level to tell this to our friends uh, and and others, uh, uh, um, you know, to to make sure that these messages uh, get out, and you're trying to help people maybe educate uh, in in a in a sense. Would, would it? I want to go back to uh, Patrick uh, and and Jim and Dove and 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 Chris even get your sense on it, right? I mean, ultimately, we have to help Ukraine win. So there's a hardware element of that. We have to replenish our stocks. So there's a monitor, you know. So there's hundreds of billions of dollars, I think, tied up. Uh, in in us getting back to where we need to be uh, in terms of our capability, as well as support uh, our ally and and partner. On the other hand, I think it it might be worth considering uh, whether we need to give some of the most prominent oligarchs uh, sanctions relief. Uh, you know, if you listen to those uh, in Alexei Navalny's orbit, uh, they think that some of the sanctions were misplaced. That. Um, you know, and, and why Navalny was so dangerous to Vladimir Putin was he he was telling the oligarchs, listen, you pay a 35 percent windfall tax on all of the stuff you've stolen. And then the 65 percent that's left is yours, as opposed to having 100 percent that is actually under Putin's thumb and he can off you at, at any at any moment and you, you lose it all. Right. So at the end of the day, is it smarter to spend 100 billion, 200 billion as an alliance? To, to actually compel the people upon which he depends to a degree for power to undermine him. I mean, at, at what point, you know, stopping short of assassination, I think I know where you're going to go, Dove, right? Uh, although I'd be very comfortable with that, seeing him strung up by piano wire uh, somewhere. Uh, and I think others might share that uh, view as well, right? I mean, what's what's the right way to do this within the confines of, you know, as Chris pointed out, a legal framework you don't want to assassinate but i mean he is trying he has he has successfully shaped american politics politics in the west it, not for the better uh and and so how do we need to to sort of respond to that in a, in a bigger geostrategic way uh jim start us off and then let's quickly go around the line and and then we'll get to uh asia uh where we have to talk about china and as well as what's going on in the middle east I just don't think there's a lot we can do in terms of of finagling uh, his uh, oligarchs to uh, to rise up against him, to pay someone off, or to. I I, I think I think we're stuck with him, uh, and we've got to prepare for that. And I I think um, a lot of what you laid out sounds great, but I don't think it's gonna. I don't think the elements are really there. Uh, where he he so controls civil society, he so controls the circle around him. He has successfully captured any of those who would do him ill or who would abandon him for something else, money or whatever it might be. I really think he's in solid control, and I'm not sure there's anything we can do but manage, try to deal with him and try to, uh, to, to, to deter him. I, I don't think there's a shortcut. I really don't. Dove? Well, first of all, you're right. I, um, 
assassination, even indirect assassination, is a violation of the law. It turns out that, you know, the, everybody knows about the, the executive order that Gerald Ford put out about, you know, against the direct assassinations. But Jimmy Carter pull, uh, uh, signed another executive order. I actually have the number, 12036, for those who want to look it up. We can't even be involved indirectly, which means that if you tried to bribe some of these oligarchs and something then happened that got them involved in stringing up Mr. Putin or poisoning him or whatever, we have just violated the law. We got to be really careful. And this administration, which, you know, as we know, wrings its hands all the time and deters itself all the time and is still worried about a nuclear Russian tactical nuclear strike is just not going to touch this. Uh, this is not the way to go. I'm totally with Jim on this again. And the only way I will reiterate, the only way we can get to this dictator is by stopping him on the battlefield. And the only way he gets stopped on the battlefield by Ukraine is if we do every single thing we can do to uh, get uh, material to Ukraine. By the way, I mean, it looks like we're going to be sending more stuff to Israel through foreign military sales and foreign military financing. We're finding ways to get stuff to Israel, even though that supplemental hasn't passed. I think with a little imagination, um, whether it's leases or something else, we can get stuff to Ukraine now and we don't have to wait. And when I say stuff, I mean the fighter jets, I mean the long range attackums. I mean, all the various things that uh, Zelensky has been begging for for the last 25 months, 22 months. Um, I, I know I've asked you this, but maybe refresh for me and the audience. Are there any legal um, restrictions or congressional approvals that would be necessary if Mike McCord or the White House were to set up a lease lend uh, effort with the Ukrainians and start large scale transfers of equipment. Is there a way to do this, whether through treasury or an, you know, some interest bearing account, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's always like some financial mechanic like that within the government uh, mechanism like that within government. Is there a way to do this that does not involve congressional authorization or a discharge petition or anything else, which doesn't particularly appear ready to pass, by the way, right? I mean, as much as everybody talks about the imperative and are giving security guarantees, Michael's point stands. And I'm even less encouraged this week than I was last week. And I wasn't encouraged last week. What are the mechanisms, Dove, to, to allow well, us to do this? The basic mechanism is um, what Obama and then Trump and now Biden have done, which is the executive order. You issue an executive order to the Treasury Department um, to essentially finance, the if they need to do it, uh, the, the uh, leasing by Ukraine uh, of equipment that the Defense Department will transfer. Now, you may not even have to do that uh, because if you go back to the original Lend-Lease deal that the Roosevelt pulled off, uh, it was basically to get Britain to pay later, you know, lease now, pay later. We'll give you great terms. Uh, this is doable. Uh, and uh, there'll be people who howl in the Congress, but they're always howling in the Congress. Frankly, for the last 10 years, this country has been run in the main by executive order, Democratic or Republican presidents, and uh, an executive order, you know, would, would do the trick. And I would be very, very surprised 
if anybody, you know, there might be some crazies in Congress uh, who might try to take this to court and challenge the executive order. But in the meantime, stuff will be going to Ukraine. Uh, I certainly uh, hope so. Patrick, uh, from your standpoint, both on the Hill and in administration and now in uh, Think Landistan, you know, what's what's the way to do this from your standpoint? Vago, we need to find ways to show a strength of character. And that means finding a way to provide the aid to Ukraine so they can help lead this fight against aggression. We need to strengthen the neighbors of Russia um, and the enemies, the natural enemies of Putin. Um, and there are lots of ways to do that. Those are things we can actually do. We shouldn't just pursue flights of fancy about what would be nice to do if we can't actually achieve the strategic aim. But we can actually achieve the strategic objective of supporting Ukraine, of supporting NATO members, of strengthening our posture uh, in combination with others in the region and globally who are like-minded to stand up to Putin and put pressure on him uh, through that harder power means. Um, I, I do think that um, you know Putin is ultimately uh, extremely brittle and weak, even if he's in charge, as Jim is rightly pointing out. That is, he's brittle and weak in the sense that he, he cannot tolerate, he cannot imagine, he cannot just contemplate any criticism. Um, and so let's get to him psychologically. Um, and I'm happy to, uh, you know, find an executive order if it's legal uh, on clandestine operations against um, assets that matter to Putin personally. But that's uh, something that's a bit of a sideshow. And you'd have to sh you'd have to show to the national security community that it will have the strategic effect that we desire. Uh, uh, Chris, uh, your your sense on all of this and what do you think uh, the next steps that go well beyond sort of the communication side of the story, right, which is obviously important, but for your, your sort of strategic take on, on the next steps we have to take that would make this somewhat more meaningful than just saying, yeah, okay, you know, we've got more sanctions that will be potentially as ineffectual as the last batch of sanctions or end up actually hurt, helping Vago, I mean, this is the the head scratcher, right? I mean, again, we're we're talking about Russia, but whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's uh, the the situation in the Middle East, um, I think this administration and the leadership on both sides of the aisle, they they need to make a decision in terms of uh, is this really important to them? And I I'm just not as a consumer of their rhetoric, as a consumer of policy. I'm not sure that it is uh, or to what degree it is important to them, right? I mean, I keep going back to the Cold War. I, I mean, it, you know, are, are we at a March 1947 moment where, you know, it's time to scare the hell out of the American people and whatever the modern day version is of that to um, to connect these dots for them so that it is clear that Putin is a threat, not just to Europe, but to the United States and that um, every you know moment of progress that Putin has um, is a win for the Chinese, is a win for the Iranians, is a win for the North Koreans. I mean, there has not been a methodical um, effort, either through policy, either through law, or certainly not through communication, that connects these dots for the American people, that overcomes the current political hurdles um, that our leaders uh, find to be more important um, than uh, statesmanship or statespeopleship, whatever the, the politically correct way to say that is. 
Um, so until that happens, we're nibbling at the edges. I mean, I and I understand that in the moments with uh, Ukraine, nibbling at the edges are important. You know, executive orders to get them the weapons that they need are, are important in the short term. But until we make a national decision that um, that this is of uh, grave concern and should be of grave concern to the American public. I just think we're going to take one step forward, two steps back in every one of these national security issues. Um, I'm going to come back to you in a second because uh, there was a confluence of events uh, that actually could uh, you know, help sort of drive that point uh, forward. But just a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Reporter and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS and American Rheinmetall. Uh, Chris, um, uh, you know, there was um, the software glitch uh, in uh, at AT&T that caused uh, folks to lose their cell uh, service. And that coming with the revelation of sort of extensive Chinese uh, espionage sort of among regular people, right? I mean, sometimes we on this program do not interact a lot with regular people. You interact maybe somewhat more with regular people for a whole variety of reasons. I'm not I'm, I'm not undercutting anybody on this call, uh, right? But sort of how people saw that, uh, you know, where you live, you live down in Florida. Was this kind of an inflection point moment for some? And explain how. Right. An AT&T interruption combined with the story of China actually fueled a bit of a panic that maybe some of us here in Washington didn't didn't see. Certainly among the group that I was with yesterday um, felt a little tinge of panic. I mean, both from the immediacy of, you know, you realize just how connected you are to your phone and how little work you can get done when you lose phone and Internet service. Um, but also then, you know, the immediate wondering, um, as there is in any sort of small crisis, and for, for some this was a crisis, you know, what did this mean? What were, what were the implications? Um, and, and look, I mean, I understand the, the administration's approach yesterday was to calm fears and, you know, reassure folks that, uh, you know, even the smallest elements of their government were still going to work, even if their cell phone didn't work. But I mean, I would love to see a, a you know, a national conversation about like, hey, look, th this is what could happen in a in a cyber um, attack. I mean, you, you know, again, Experts talk about, hey, you know, the water industry is under attack. Um, the banking industry could be under attack. The power industry could be under attack. Now our phones could be under attack. But no one has really made the American public aware of this. And this goes back to the conversation we were just having. So again, until there is a national level effort to connect some of these dots for folks, you don't want to sow the seeds of panic, but you want them to understand. Um, and and quite quite frankly, I, I feel like we missed that opportunity out of the pandemic to make people understand that this type of crisis um, could be what we face if we don't stand up to the Russias, the Chinas, the Ar Irans, the North Koreas. I mean, we, you know, there are a lot of national security professionals like those on this call that recognize that we are in the early stages of, of conflict with these countries, but we need to do a better job of uh, informing the American public um, that that you know, unless we do something, unless we stand up, unless we have those principles that Patrick mentioned earlier, um, th this could be the new norm. Uh, Patrick, uh, talk to us a little bit about this 
uh, revelation, right? I mean, obviously, uh, a leak. Uh, you know, we have known for a very long time about the pervasive nature of Chinese uh, espionage, whether it's against military targets, industrial uh, personnel records, Office of Personnel Management. Several of you on this call uh, had your uh, uh, files uh, compromised, among many of our other friends in Washington and beyond. Um, and yet, here was in stark terms, the nature of the campaign, its global dimension that the Chinese are collecting on Pakistanis, which I'm sure will go over like a lead balloon, that you can buy, you know, critical NATO documents for like 10,000 uh, bucks. That's not good. Um, what, what does this tell us that we didn't know? And what actions is it likely to fuel? Although I understand the administration is doing some uh, critical infrastructure, uh, cyber infrastructure uh, policy changes as well, which, which will be a welcome. Uh, but your your sense on how this necessarily changes the discussion and Chris's point uh, about about the need to to not. I mean, honestly, I'm going to I'm going to shift gears. I think you do have to scare people, frankly, uh, out of their own uh, uh, complacency. But anyway, take it away. Well, we certainly got a great glimpse into China's cyber espionage campaign um, through this large data dump uh, leak to GitHub, a code sharing platform where. This company, Isoon, is just one of many, even one of hundreds of part of the Chinese cybersecurity um, community that provide services that the Chinese government has really uh, outsourced to. So the Ministry of Public Security, the Ministry of State Security, the PLA, and other party instruments outsource um, via lists of targets, foreign governments, domestic governments, actors, um, organizations from Chatham House and IISS to the British, you know, Ministry of Defense to, right. you know, Vietnam, Taiwan's road systems, Indian immigration. I, I was struck by the interest in the individual uh, shopping list. You know, so you could, you know, twenty five thousand dollars to gain access to Vago's iPhone remotely. Um, you know, it, that's <laughs> that is the kind, and you know, not, not you by name, but but in effect, anybody. Um, thanks, was... thanks for thanks for terrifying me, <laughs> uh, Patrick. But anyway, I knew my phone was running hot for, for some reason. Anyway, right. So, but you wouldn't know it, right? They would just. I mean, so this is. It, there's just a price on all of this. So it's incredible how this ecosystem of uh, cyber uh, security organizations. Um, the, originally, these young red hackers who grew up and you know started 30 years ago, um, they have really matured into this massive network. Although, interestingly, the whole leak appears to be, uh, or at least it's meant to appear to be, uh, a disgruntled worker um, showing just that this is a cyber sweatshop, two, you know, long hours, low pay, and yet, and yet the company is making a lot of money because they're charging uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to grab the social media and, and geolocations of, of different places. Um, and they're making a lot of money. Um, but it is a, a serious problem. It's what uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray has been essentially uh, repeating over and over again, but people have a hard time understanding what it means. Um, so the ISOON leak gives you a real glimpse into putting a face on what is the kind of target activity that is going on on a regular basis by China. And it's it's just vast. So if we worry about, um, you know, this is well beyond a cyber hygiene, by the way, to protect these things. Uh, we need a good offense, we need a big defense, and we need to recognize that everything is out there for a price, is vulnerable, um, and we need resilience. So this is this is really uh, just a reminder of what 
well, if you're under 30, you've grown up in this world. Um, if you're over 30, you, you may need reminders that this is every day uh, a serious threat. Dove, uh, we're uh, a little bit short on time, and I want you to take two bites uh, at uh, two uh, different apples uh, if uh, you, you'd like. Uh, and Jim, you're welcome to weigh in on this as well as if, if you'd like. Um, international community has called on Israel to curtail its campaign in Gaza, transition to a two-state solution. Uh, and Israel today, uh, again, has rejected those calls, has put its own plan out. Uh, there will be a, a military occupation of Gaza uh, indefinitely. Uh, and the war is going to continue as long as is necessary, uh, is is the word. At this point, more than a million, million Gazans have taken refuge in the south, of the south of the country, basically driven there because the Israelis have told them to go there. And now the campaign is uh, really heating up to the point uh, that it's uh, becoming dire. Um, humanitarian convoys uh, have been interrupted. There's talk of uh, sort of another deal. Uh, and the United States has continued to remain a steadfast supporter uh, of Israel, again, vetoing a ceasefire measure uh, in the Security Council. And, and now it's beginning to backfire, I think, globally on the United States reasonably, right, whether it's in the G20 or, or, or elsewhere. At, at what point does the cost of this support dove become too high for the United States to pay? Because this isn't just BB, right? I mean, we, we have a tendency of saying, well, this is just BB. It's not. It's approved by the War Cabinet, which means that it has the support of uh, the Israeli population as well, right? An overwhelming majority of which are very comfortable with a vengeance campaign directed toward Gaza uh, and unfortunately even directed toward Palestinians in, in general. So at, at what point does this drive a change or... Is, is this a bucking bronco that the United States is strapped to and where it goes, we, we go along with it? And what does that mean? Well, uh, let me clarify a few things. First, the uh, war cabinet is on the verge of breaking up because uh, Netanyahu, uh, first he blocked some negotiations on uh, with the Egyptians and the Qataris uh, and Hamas, obviously, uh, on release of hostages. On the hostage release deal. Right. Yes. Right. And uh, Gantz in particular, who's the leading opponent of Netanyahu, if there was an election tomorrow or the next day, uh, was virtually ready to walk out. So was the defense minister, Gallant. Uh, so they're really hanging by a thread there. And the proposal that uh, really it was Netanyahu's and reflecting the, the extreme right wing uh, was to say, first, uh, he doesn't want unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. Um, you know, but that begs the question of, well, is this, re is you know, the West Bank and Gaza really part of Israel? If it's not, it's not Israeli sovereign territory. And he doesn't have much of an argument, but that's what he said. He said uh, he wants direct negotiations, but of course, he's refused to do that with anybody who will that he could negotiate with him. Uh, he wants uh, ongoing Israeli security control over the West Bank. Uh, it may or may not be occupation that you talk about because he's been pretty vague about all of this. The other thing is that Israeli polls are not showing that uh, the majority of Israelis want revenge. Um, that That is not the case at all. Uh, uh, what they do want, uh, of course, is for this war to end, the hostages to come home and Hamas to be destroyed, which is a very, very different thing. Um, there is no majority for moving back to uh, Gaza. That is to say, Jewish settlers moving there. Uh, in fact, that's a, a crazy minority on the right. 
But uh, again, as we've talked about in the case of Orban, in the case of Putin, in the case of Xi, Netanyahu is still in charge. Nobody seems to be able to get rid of him. And so uh, we are where we are there. Now, the question of the United States and where we are, we just saw that Tony Blinken just got the cold shoulder. You mentioned the G20, uh, but you didn't say what happened. He got the cold shoulder there from the other 19. Uh, and that's a real right. problem. I think that uh, what will make the difference to Biden uh, is going to be what happens in Michigan on Tuesday, because there is a major campaign in Michigan uh, being led by uh uh, Rashida Tlaib's sister uh, to tell uh, Arab American, Palestinian American voters just to stay home. Now, if that happens and uh, it looks like a real rebuke of Biden, who has been out to Michigan and who is nervous about Michigan, and it I don't know whether Michigan will or will not turn the election around, but the Democrats sure are nervous about it. If that happens, I think you're going to see uh, a different American posture. If, on the other hand, uh, Biden wins handily, I think he's going to stick to his guns. Now, you know that they have put out, the United States has put out its own Security Council draft. I don't know if it's been finalized yet, but eventually, but it does talk about a cessation of hostilities in some form. Uh, and in the meanwhile, negotiations are back on with Egyptians, Qataris, Israelis. Uh, and so something might happen. But uh, to me, I think the, the the turning point could well be the election in Michigan, or rather the primary. And I should point out, okay. um, and I should point out uh, that uh, Rashida Talib's sister is Lila Talib, uh, and she is uh, the only Palestinian American who's uh, ever uh, served in in Congress. Um, and let me quickly ask you about uh, Armenia, Nicole Pashinyan, the Armenian prime. You know, it's been a fascinating week. Uh, for that, for those people who are interested in what's going on in the Caucasus, um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, implored Aliyev uh, to have peaceful intentions and strike peace with Armenia. And a couple of days after that, uh, Nicole Pashinyan uh, in a France 24 uh, interview uh, said that, uh, you know, Armenia was effectively suspending uh, its participation in the collective security treaty organization that was created in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union that's dominated by Russia in, in order to try to maintain security, citing that in 2020, 21, 22, you know, and even in 23, nobody nobody from this organization came to Armenia's aid when it was attacked by uh, Azerbaijan. How does this potentially change the dynamic? Because I think there are some in Yerevan that want to make this strategic shift away from Moscow, that was not a security guarantor. And we heard from Dr. Eugene Rumer last week from the Carnegie uh, Endowment saying, look, there's a, you know, he used the term drug deal between Aliyev and Putin to punish Armenia. And Armenia now is trying to warm relations with Ankara, as well as New Delhi and a number of, you know, and in Washington as well, if it can pull off. And I just want to cite um, a, a great um, op-ed that's uh, in our pages uh, is up on our website uh, now uh, that was uh, authored by Michael Rubin of the American Enterprise Institute and, and uh, Christine Arakelian, uh, also of AEI. Uh, small ties bring great opportunities. Uh, and so I commend the audience to check it out. But what, what's your sense on how this is working out? And is Pashinyan making a risky move? Because as I recall, there's still a couple of thousand Russian troops that are based in Armenia. Well, obviously, there's an element of risk there. Uh, what really it depends on is 
where Erdogan is. If Erdogan success really means it, first of all, when he talks to the Azeris and says, cool it, that's number one indicator that it's important. The second thing is, is Erdogan, like my theory about Orban, getting really nervous about uh, Putin? And there have been some things he's done, uh, leaving aside, uh, you know, finally letting Sweden enter NATO, that are indicators. Um, Putin was furious that Erdogan let American warships uh, dock at Istanbul. Now, you know, the, the Turkish interpretation of, of the Montreux Convention is they're not going to let warships from other than the littoral states inside the Black Sea. Uh, but Istanbul's awful close. And so uh, that's another indicator, a straw in the wind, that maybe Erdogan is turning around. Now, if he's turning around generally vis-a-vis -vis NATO, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the United States, therefore vis-a-vis -vis Russia, then I think it's pretty serious about what he's telling the Azeris and his influence will clearly um, make a difference to uh, Armenia. Uh, one other thing I want to point out, because we've been talking about this region, uh, Vice Admiral Cooper, who runs the uh, naval component of Central Command, said this week, that the maritime warfare against the Kutis, uh, the Houthis, <laughs> Kutis, the Houthis, uh, is the worst since World War II. Now, given that, given what I just said about being near the Black Sea, given what Patrick is always telling us about East Asia, uh, given the Baltic issue that Jim has talked about and the Nordic issue that he's talked about, you got to ask yourself: Do we have sufficient naval? capabilities of whatever kind to deal with all of that. How are we going to deal with it? How credible are we going to be? I have an article coming out about this in about a half hour. Boy, do I agree, uh, Vago, um, Dove. Uh, I agree so much with what Dove just said. I always felt that what Gaza was, and well, the Houthis rather, what the Houthi situation was doing is it was a bit of a stress test to see you know, just how much could we pile on uh, in terms of crisis and and see how much we're we're stretched and stressed in terms of our capabilities. And so I think this is this is showing us something that we always felt could be the case uh, is that we're not a, a well positioned to handle multiple crises. Uh, and now we're really seeing that the chicken come chickens come home to roost in a minor way there it could get much worse than what we're dealing with right now but i thought that was very insightful and dove look forward to your article a terrific discussion everybody really uh appreciate it uh thanks so very much uh for joining us all of you chris thank you very much uh and jim uh for you and dove and uh patrick for being part of our conversation uh each week and a quick reminder to the audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host uh, with our very own JJ Gertler. Uh, hope everybody has uh, a great day, a great weekend, and our team's case, a great week, until we reconvene again next Friday. Uh, uh, and uh, stay tuned for the business roundtable that's back at its normal time uh, to be posted on uh, Sunday. Until then, hope everybody has a great weekend uh, and a great day, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks very much.